two or three weeks ago, my family and I were walking along the golf course when Owen, who always runs up ahead of us, shouted out, Come see, come see, I see an animal. Wasn't sure what it was. Eventually, we, we came upon him and we discovered what he was so excited to show us. Significantly sized box turtle. I think it was a box turtle, I'm not sure. It was big. I found out later they could bite you. But we were all just really delighted that Owen shared with us what he was seeing. He invited us into his experience to see something that, from his perspective, was really amazing. We're going to be in Isaiah 53 this morning, and I want to do something similar. I want to invite you into this chapter to see the suffering servant of God. And a few more things. As we work through this passage, I want you to see your sin, see your substitute, and see your Savior. Isaiah wrote this passage to a people in exile, Babylonian exile. They, they are outside of Jerusalem, under the judgment of God. And we come to, to this chapter in the second half of Isaiah, and it's as if Isaiah is saying, look, I know this judgment is really bad. I know things are not going so great. They're looking down, but, but listen, you are not without hope. God has not forgotten you. He's determined to save you. He plans on doing it through all these promises. Back from exile through Cyrus, yes. But then we see this mysterious servant comes up a few times. And we realize that this servant is a future messianic figure who will bring an incredible redemption to all of God's people. This is what Isaiah wants us to see. That there is hope. main idea of this chapter this morning is that God saves His people from His righteous wrath, wrath they deserve, through the substitutionary death and justifying resurrection of Jesus the conquering servant king. If you want the abridged version, God saves sinners through the work of Christ. And the exhortation this morning is quite simple. See and believe. See Jesus for who he is and believe in him. Let's pray and we'll begin this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would give us ears to hear it. But we are not, make us. But we have not, give us. But we know not, teach us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 13 of chapter 52. Uh, verse 13 through 15 of chapter 52 kind of set the stage for what's going to happen in chapter 53. 
that we're going to see rulers who look at this servant of God and go, what? Not anything special about him. And then they are shocked at the end of what becomes of him. They're shocked that he ends up exalted to this place, as we'll see in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 53. They are astounded. Look with me at verse 13. See my servant. He will be successful. Or act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up. Greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, servant, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man. and His form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For they will see what had not been told them. And they will understand what they had not heard. God is going to consecrate many nations to himself. That's what this sprinkling imagery is about. We've seen it in Leviticus a little bit when something gets cleaned or consecrated to the Lord's use, it's sprinkled. And that's the idea here. The the servant is going to somehow, this, this disfigured servant of God is going to be raised up, greatly exalted, and he's somehow going to sprinkle many nations clean. He's going to bring them to God. And the kings of the world will be shocked by it. Their mouths will be shut. Because they will see. They will understand what they had not heard. Verse 1. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been Revealed. Arm of the Lord is like the Lord's strength, his power, his might. Who, who has seen the arm of the Lord? To whom has it been revealed? We're back to the servant again. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He did not have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised. And we didn't value him. Isaiah indicts both himself and his readers in these first few verses. He says, we looked at the servant of the Lord, and we rejected him. We cared not for him. Thought he was just like a dry root sprouting out of the ground. Nothing important. He was not impressive or majestic. He wasn't a beautiful or really attractive person that we thought, man, that guy, I want to spend some time with him. He says, this is God's servant and we reject him. He says, the servant is a man of suffering. Like someone people turn away from. We see, if we can put ourselves into the text, that the way one treats the servant of God is an expression about how one feels about God himself. And what Isaiah is doing here is he's showing his readers 
and you and me, our sin, our rejection of God and of God's servant. We cannot see his true beauty and glory apart from a work of the Spirit. In our flesh, we look at the servant and we say, this guy, this guy is not one of the winners. He is a loser. I mean, it's axiomatic that losers cannot deliver other losers. A man of pain and sickness, what what can this servant do for me? What can he do for the rest of us? We don't need him. We're, We're better off trusting in ourselves. We often think in very small, worldly terms, don't we? We look at a situation and evaluate it based on what we know, and we act as if there aren't a million other factors in the world that we have no idea about. And one comes and looks at this servant and goes, he's just a big nothing. Ordinary. In fact, it's one that people would turn away from. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around all the mysterious ways that God is always at work. And for that reason, we often will choose to trust in ourselves rather than in God's word. We are a lot like Isaiah's original audience in that. We have some good examples of rejecting God's word in favor of trusting in self throughout this book, especially the first half. There's judgment and mercy throughout, but if you want to be really just simple, the first 39 chapters are most all judgment, and then the last half, 40 through 66, is comfort, encouragement, promise. But we see right when Isaiah's ministry starts, we remember the story, right? Really famous in Isaiah chapter 6, he finds himself in the throne room of God, and the train of God's robe fills up the temple. There are angelic creatures there, and they are saying to one another, holy, holy, holy. It's a beautiful course. Holy, holy, holy. The whole place is shaking and filled with smoke, and Isaiah sees who God is. And all of a sudden, he recognizes who he is. He recognizes that he has a sin problem. He cries out, Woe is me. He does that because he realizes, I am a sinner. I have rebelled against this holy God. I can't be in his presence. I deserve to die. I deserve his wrath and his justice. But then something surprising happens. One of the heavenly creatures takes a burning coal and presses it to Isaiah's lips. It says, we hear the voice of God, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity. Your sin has been atoned for. Scene continues, and, and God asks, Hey, who will go tell my people my word? Which they're not going to listen to, by the way. And Isaiah, in response to the grace of God, says, Here am I, send me. 
And that's what God does. He sends him to King Ahaz, whom we meet at the beginning of chapter 7. And Ahaz is a notoriously wicked king. He would sacrifice his children to false gods, all kinds of other heinous behaviors. But what's going on at the beginning of chapter 7 is Isaiah comes to him to tell him that he should trust God in his current predicament. You see, uh, the kingdoms of, of Syria and the northern kingdoms of Israel so in Israel at this point, right, 12 tribes, you've got the northern 10 tribes, and then you have uh, Judah and Benjamin, and just simply called Judah. And the northern 10 have split off, and they are in a partnership with Syria. And they want to attack, attack Assyria, who's a rising superpower. And they want Judah to help them. And in order to do this, their thought is, we will attack Judah, and then force them, you know, compel them with our military, to help us go and fight Assyria. And so Ahaz looks around at the political scene. He goes, this isn't looking too good. I don't, I don't want to join that fight. And so he has a decision to make. Isaiah tells him, trust God. Trust God. He will preserve you. Don't worry about your enemies. God will fight for you. He will see this thing through. Ask for a sign, Ahaz. He'll give it to you. He will prove himself to you. Ahaz says, no signs necessary. And he turns around and he cuts a deal with Assyria. Assyria comes in, destroys the northern kingdom and Israel's enemies. And so short term, it looks like, hey, what a great idea. This was a wonderful deal that he struck. But the irony is actually pretty thick. Judah's Assyrian savior would become its executioner. Of course, the northern kingdoms were eliminated, but not many years from that point, Assyria would be at the walls of Jerusalem, ready to try and take the city. And at this point, we meet our, our second example of choosing to ultimately trust in self rather than in the Lord. It's not as obvious, though, at the beginning. Because we typically think of Hezekiah as a really good king. And he had some, some good qualities to him. did some wise things. So when he's on the throne initially, when we meet him in chapter uh, 36, he has a problem. The Assyrians are surrounding Jerusalem. I mean, they are taunting the people. They are yelling to the walls, no one can stop us. We have defeated this land and their God and that God. And who is your God that he would protect you? You guys stand no chance. And Hezekiah has that same kind of decision that his father Ahaz did. In whom will I trust? And Hezekiah sets a good example right away. He, he sends for Isaiah. He prays and the Lord responds and says, I will protect my name. I will deliver you. And then there's a, an evening and the Lord sends the angel of the Lord. I'm going to read it to you. I wasn't planning on it, but I will. Chapter 37, verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. 
when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh. One day while his sons were worship, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. Then his son, Esar Hadon, became king in his place. God makes good on his word to Hezekiah. He defeats Israel's enemies. Doesn't even need Judah's armies to do so. But then, even after all this, after God has proved himself faithful, Hezekiah gets sick. And Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says, you're going to die. And Hezekiah turns to the wall again famously and prays. And Isaiah turns around and comes back and says, the Lord has heard your prayer. You will live 15 more years. And yet despite his frailty, Despite God's faithfulness in delivering him from Assyria, Hezekiah still falls. He still ends up trusting in himself rather than the Lord. Look with me at chapter 39. You can turn there. At that time, Merodach Baladun, son of Baladun, king of Babylon, sent letters and a gift to Hezekiah, since he heard that Hezekiah had been sick and had recovered. Hezekiah was pleased with the letters, and he showed the envoys his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, and all his armory, and everything that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his palace in all his realm, that Hezekiah did not show them. Then the prophet Isaiah came to King Hezekiah and asked him, What did these men say? And where did they come to you from? Hezekiah replied, They came to me from a distant country, from Babylon. Isaiah asked, What have they seen in your palace? Hezekiah answered, They have seen everything in my palace. There isn't anything in my treasuries that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants who come from you, whom you father, will be taken away. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. Because he thought, There will be peace and security during my lifetime. Do you see what happened in this text? Hezekiah gets a note from Babylon 
And he decides what is wise for him to do is to try and forge a political alliance. He wants to be a player on the world stage. He knows that Babylon, again, is rising power. And so he's showing them how rich and powerful he is. He, he could be an asset. Look at all these things that we have here. We're a really up-and-coming kingdom. You could use a guy like me. Let's be partners trying to forge a political alliance just like his father. It's foolishness. And in the end, we learn that Hezekiah turns out to be all about Hezekiah. I mean, isn't it, isn't it striking? Isaiah tells him, all of your things are going to be carried away. Babylon is going to take everything from you. And your sons will become eunuchs. And look at how Hezekiah responds in verse 8. He says, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. And initially you read that and you think, okay, he's just really trusting in the providence of God. He believes that God is for him and will do good to him. But then you read on. Because he thought there will be peace and security during my lifetime. He thinks it's good not because of his thoughts of God, but because of his selfishness. He's worried about himself. And see, it was easy for him in crisis to turn to the Lord, to ask for help. Assyria is at our walls. God, deliver us. It was easy for him in crisis. He was sick to turn to the wall and pray to God, give me some more time. But in the ordinary, every day of his life, his trust very quickly moved away from the Lord to himself. His focus ended up in the same place that his father's had been. Me, myself, and I. He rejected the wisdom of God, the word of God, in favor of his own political calculations. God's wise government of the world doesn't always seem wise to us. And like Hezekiah, we very easily see temporary troubles and run to the Lord. But, but I think sometimes, oftentimes, we miss what those deeper troubles ought to communicate to us. Which is that because of our rejection of God and because of our sin, we are in great danger. We, we look at temporary troubles and we say, that's a problem, all the while ignoring the ultimate danger that we are in. Let me try to, to show you how I think this works. Let me start with, with Luke 13. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. At that time, some people came and reported to him 
about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as well. And so the, the people are coming to Jesus and they're saying that those guys that Pilate killed while they were offering sacrifices, that judgment fell on them because they're really big sinners, right? And Jesus says, no. I'm not going to say whether it was judgment or not judgment. He says, that's not the point. And the point is when you, you look at that situation and you look at the Tower of Siloam falling and killing others, the question not to ask is, the question you shouldn't ask is, well, is that God's judgment on them? It says the right question to ask is, have I repented of my sin? Because unless you repent of your sin, this is a preview of your eternity. If you do not repent of your sin, you will likewise perish. That's what Jesus says. We are supposed to see sin as abhorrent. Difficulties and troubles are meant to help us to see the outrageous nature of sin. So, think about this. Think of the feeling you get when you discover someone has childhood cancer. Or the reaction you have when two people fly planes into the World Trade Center. Or when an elementary school becomes the scene of a mass shooting. Think about how you feel when a pandemic causes loss of life and cripples an economy. Feel disgusted, saddened, outraged. Why? Because you recognize this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is disordered. These things are evil and they are wicked. You find them abhorrent. But let me ask you, do you find your own sin abhorrent? Do you think that and feel that, that same way about harboring bitterness against someone? Or when you've gossiped or refused to forgive or simply just lived prayerlessly as if God didn't exist? Do you, do you have that same sense of outrage at your own sin as you do when you see the effects of sin in the world? You ought to. We have this really bad habit 
of looking at major crises and going, yeah, that's really bad. And then looking at ourselves and saying, not so bad. Really, I'm a good person, right? We look, we look at history and we consider Hitler and we say, yes, judgment. Hitler deserves to go to hell. It's right and it's good. And then we look at ourselves. I'm pretty good. I'm better, I'm better than Hitler. I, I pay my taxes and go to work and, you know, I try, to, I try to be a nice person. Our hearts make generous allowances for ourselves but not for others. So here's my question. Is it possible that you see historic tragedies and temporary troubles, but have failed to see the ultimate danger that your sin has put you in? It's kind of easy to see significant events. But they're meant to teach us about the heinousness of our own sin. In 1890, Oscar Wilde wrote a very famous short story called The Portrait of Dorian Gray. And in the story, Dorian has a picture made for him and he comes face to face with it and he says, if only we could reverse roles, then I could remain youthful and unchanged forever, while my portrait would do all the aging. And eventually, at great expense, Dorian gets his wish. He remains handsome and youthful, while the portrait, hidden away in an attic, begins to age. As the story continues, though, we learn that while Dorian enjoys physical beauty, the portrait begins to bear the consequences of the real man's behavior. Dorian makes a cruel comment. The mouth of the portrait twists into a cruel grin. Dorian nurses hatred for a rival, and the eyes of the portrait narrow in rage. Dorian murders a man, and the hands of the portrait drip blood. Eventually, Dorian comes face to face with the portrait and he realizes that the terrible picture represents his inner self. He despises the painting so much that he slashes it with a knife. The picture vanishes and Dorian Gray is discovered in a pool of his own blood, with a knife in his heart by a servant. Friends, hope in ourselves is suicide. There is a sin within all of us, a true picture of ourselves that we can't see, riddled with sin and a hatred of God. Self-trust is a suicide. It is a way of failure. We cannot save ourselves from the wrath of God that we deserve. And yet we look 
at the servant and we say, nothing special about him. I'll take my own chances. It doesn't make sense how he could be any help to me. Friends, we need to to recognize the greatness of this God against whom we have sinned. The greatness of this God that we have rejected. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, we read this. See, the Lord God comes with strength, and His power establishes His rule. His wages are with Him, and His reward accompanies Him. He protects His flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in His arms, and He carries them in the fold of His garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? Or marked off the heavens with the span of His hand? Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on the scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or given Him counsel? Who did He consult? Who gave Him understanding and taught Him the paths of justice? Who taught Him knowledge and shadowed Him the way of understand- and showed Him the way of understanding? Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust on the scales. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. This is the God against whom we sin. This is the the great and glorious creator of everything. This is the God we reject. And this is the God when we think to ourselves, well, I could make myself right with him. Impossible. Hope in yourself is suicide. You cannot save yourself. You cannot make yourself right with God. It's, it's hopelessness. Friends, are you repulsed by your own sin? I love what Billy Graham used to say. He'd say, it's easy to get people saved. What's hard is getting them lost. You see his point. Nobody wants to confess or recognize that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. But that's exactly where all of us are. All of us have rejected God. All of us have despised His servant. And that's what we see in these first three verses. But in the next section, we see our substitute. We see the mysterious plan of God at work. Look with me at verse 4. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment 
for our peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. And he was assigned a grave with the wicked. But he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Friends, this is the heart of the gospel. The innocent servant dies in the place of guilty sinners to incredible realities that we must recognize. Number one, God planned to reconcile sinful people to himself through a substitutionary sacrifice. This is is written hundreds of years before Jesus. Hundreds. And yet, it's so clearly fulfilled in Jesus that if you go to many synagogues today, they do not read this passage. They, they, they stop their reading midway through chapter 52, and then they pick up the next week in chapter 54. And the rabbis say that this passage is just too confusing, causes too much argumentation. And that's because it so clearly points to the Lord Jesus Christ. God planned the cross. It was not plan B. It was plan A. And it was planned in eternity past, before the foundations of the world. God was determined to save His people. He was determined to save all who come to Him in repentance, in faith. He planned to save a sinful people through substitutionary sacrifice. This is clear throughout Scripture. Right, from Genesis, I think of Genesis 22. Abraham is supposed to sacrifice Isaac, who's the child of promise. We have that picture of him there. He's got Isaac bound. And he's got the knife raised above his head. He's getting ready to slaughter his own son in obedience to God. And then God's voice comes, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. And Abraham finds a ram in the thicket and sacrifices the ram to God and he names that place God provides. We see substitutionary sacrifice. Or think of the Passover and the Exodus. Israel is saved from the judgment of God by taking shelter beneath the blood of a lamb. God says, slaughter a lamb in this way. Cover the doorposts of your homes with blood. 
Go inside and the angel of death will not touch you because you have trusted in my provision. And that's not to mention the the whole sacrificial system, which we know lots about because we have been studying Leviticus. And because we've been studying Leviticus, we, we hear these notes that Isaiah is playing that point us back to the Day of Atonement and to the scapegoat. Do you see this in verse 4? He himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. Makes us think of Leviticus 16.21 when Aaron is confessing the sins of the people. Aaron will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' iniquities and rebellious acts. All their sins. He is to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed, appointed for the task. With that image of sin leaving the camp and eventually fading over the horizon. We also have in, in verse 10 another allusion to the sacrificial system. In verse 10, you see, when you make him a guilt offering. Remember, we look back at Leviticus and we recognize that a guilt offering is, is one of many different offerings that give us different perspectives on sin. And the whole sacrificial system presents different models or analogies to describe the effects of sin and the way of remedying them. And so the, the burnt offering gives us a personal picture wherein the animal was consumed on the altar in place of the sinner. And we have the purification offering, sometimes called the sin offering, which gives us a medical picture. And the idea is that sin makes the world so muddy and dirty that God can't be there. And the way that you make it clean is with blood. And the blood of the animal makes it clean so that God can dwell among his people. And then we have a commercial picture, which is the guilt offering or the compensation offering. And the picture here is that sin is a debt which man incurs against God that must be paid in blood. The wages of sin is death. And in Leviticus 17, the life is in the blood. This is how payment for sin is made. We understand that from Hebrews it is impossible for the blood of lambs and goats to actually take away sin. We recognize that throughout salvation history, God was at work, and he was using all of these events, he was using the sacrificial system in a pedagogical way. He was using it to teach us about how he was going to bring salvation to his people through a substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus is the scapegoat who carries our sins upon his head. Jesus is the guilt offering who pays our sin debt with his own blood. Jesus is our substitute. A substitute is someone that takes the place of someone else. And this is what Jesus does when he dies on the cross for our sins. He is absorbing the wrath of God. Wrath that should be yours and mine in our place for our sins. This is an astounding 
reality. Second tantalizing reality in these verses. God loves the guilty. You know that? God says, I love sinners. I, I love guilty people. Why? Why? Why would God send his righteous servant to die for wicked sheep? For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God loves sinners. He sent Jesus to save them. He sent Jesus to save us. Now, now some people balk at this idea. And they'll say, the cross is divine child abuse. Maybe you've heard that, I don't know. First of all, it's a, it's a category error. It just confuses the difference between God's ontological makeup and our own, the difference between uh, the creator and his creation. But, but secondly, it just doesn't fit. Because Jesus was part of making this plan in eternity past, and he willingly carries out this plan. Jesus is not a victim on the cross. He is a willing participant in the plan of God. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was going to the cross willingly. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. It tells us in John 10, 17, This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it up again. No one takes it, that's his life, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Jesus goes to the cross not because it's just, I'll show you how much I love you, I'm going to die, but because it's necessary to atone for sin. Right? The cross is a great expression of God's love, not because someone dies there, but because the death was necessary to reconcile us with God. Do you see the difference? It's the difference between uh, me telling my wife, Chelsea, do you want to know how much I love you? See that bear in the backyard? I'm going to go wrestle it. And in the course of wrestling the bear, I die. Right? That's, that's stupidity. I don't show her how much I love her. It's frivolous. But if my wife is in the backyard and a bear comes and is just going to attack her, and then I take on the bear... And in my defense of my wife, I, I die. Well, then that does display some love. You see the difference? There's the difference between stupidity and sacrifice. The cross 
It's not frivolous. It's absolutely necessary. There's no other way for sinners like you and me. There's no other way for rebels like you and me. There's no other way for evil people like you and me to be reconciled to a perfectly good, perfectly holy, perfectly just God apart from the cross of Christ. He had to die so that we might live. He did it because he loves us. God loves the guilty. That's really, it's, it's offensive to some. God doesn't love those who have their lives cleaned up and buttoned up. That's, I guess it's a good thing. But if they're trusting in themselves, that's, that's not honoring to God. God loves those who are poor in spirit who see the wickedness of their sin, they see his holiness, and they say, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I hate my sin. I, I want to I be more like Christ, but I, I can't save myself. I, I need you. Save me. This is how, how God's grace works. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, you are healed. Non-Christian, hear the invitation of the gospel. Hear the deal. God is saying to you, this is a great exchange. You, I, I will take your sin, and you take my righteousness. All the curses that are due to you for your sin, all the wrath of God that was stored up for you, I'll take that. And you take all the blessings that I earned in my life. This is a good gift of grace. Take the deal. Repent of your sin. Be baptized. Put your faith in Jesus. There is fullness of joy in Christ. Christian, rejoice at this wonderful truth. Punishment for our peace was upon him. There's, there's no wrath left for you. God is not mad at you. There is no trouble coming for you in the future. This life is the most miserable you will ever be. There is no trial that you will not outlast. There is suffering now, yes, but there is glory coming. That's incredible. Punishment for your peace, for my peace, was on him. See your substitute. See Christ and, and worship. Love how Peter encourages us with these same words in 1 Peter 2.24. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And it shows us this picture of our sin. See your sin, see your substitute. And he says, see your substitute as your Savior, as the King, high and lifted up 
and exalted. Look with me at these last few verses. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed and prolong his days. And by his hand, the servant's hand, Jesus' hand, the Lord's will or the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Dead men do not see their progeny. Dead men do not accomplish the will of the Lord. Dead men are not satisfied. Dead men do not divide the spoil. Dead men do not intercede. How can Isaiah say this of the servant if he was killed? The servant is alive. See, our passage presumes a resurrection. And just in case you have forgotten how miraculous that is, people don't rise from the dead. We Christians believe that Jesus fulfills this prophecy and that God demonstrates his approval of Christ. He shows us that Christ's death really did make satisfaction for sin by raising him up from the dead again. Jesus is alive. He's ruling and reigning right now. And one day he's going to return to make all things new. And Jesus is satisfied. Did you see that in verse 11? After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. The idea of satisfaction here is just so neat. (laughs) It's not like Jesus gets done with all of this and then looks at, at his work and at you and me and then goes, disappointing, really. No, no, he, he, he looks at what he's done and he looks at you and me and he says, this is wonderful, I am satisfied. You understand what this means? This means that Jesus is not satisfied based on what you do or do not do in this or that situation. It means, Christian, that God is satisfied in and of himself and that he loves you just as much on your best day as he does on your worst day as he does on your best day. God's love for you is steadfast and enduring. It's not contingent upon your great successes in life. He loves you because he loves you. He's chosen to save you from your sins and he will not fail. Jesus is satisfied. 
Friends, pray that you would share in Christ's satisfaction. If you are spending your Christian life right now looking for those sweet little circumstances that will give you satisfaction, abandon that search. The last circumstance lied to you. And the circumstance that's just over the horizon in your life, it's lying to. Satisfaction is found in Christ alone. Stop looking for it elsewhere. You want to become like, like a little kid who tastes something sweet at dinner. I don't know if you guys have had this experience. I have lots of kids. Um, and when they're little, between, like, I don't know, when they're, you're still feeding them and you have to bring them their plate. And what I always have to do is I line up, you know, there's three kind of different, I don't know how many food groups there are, but usually I have three things on their plate. There's the vegetable and like a, a protein and, and then, you know, some sweet. And if I get the order right, everything goes really well, right? Vegetables, protein. The sweet always comes last. There's a reason for that. Because if I give them the sweet thing first, they do not want anything else. This is how we should be with the Lord. But when we taste the sweetness of Christ, when we taste and see that the Lord is good, we should say, I don't want anything else. I'm satisfied with that sweetness. I don't need anything else. Don't, don't try to feed me those worldly Brussels sprouts. I know they're bitter. Give me the, the M&Ms and yogurt. It's good. I want to be satisfied in Christ. Pray that you would find your satisfaction and your joy in Christ alone. Put spiritual disciplines in your life to cultivate that joy in Christ. Read your Bibles. Pray. Call one another. Pray together. Come here. Sing songs to God. Cultivate your joy. Recognize and take advantage of the delights that God has given to you in Christ. Don't don't turn back to the way of sin. Don't be like Hezekiah where you've seen God be faithful over and over and over again, and then at the end of your life, falter and start trusting in yourself. Linger in this passage. 